and release show. My name is Matt, and I am joined today by my good friend from Nashville, Sam the Sam Moses. Here I am once again. <laughs> Here you are once again. Here I go again on the road. <laughs> Sam and I have been uh, we, we we've been we've been chatting a little bit too long, so. Uh, <laughs> So here we are. I don't know how long this episode is going to be, but Sam's going to go ahead and take us right into housekeeping. Woo! Buddy. We're not even going to tell him the title of the episode yet? No, not yet. Okay. Just wasting time. Housekeeping, my friends. Welcome to this unique time where you get to go. (laughs) Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to Instagram. You're going to take a screenshot of this episode. You're going to post it. You're going to tag me, Moses Mastering, tag Matt for the record mastering. We will both share it. That way we cross market. Also, we get to know you one-on-one, which is great. We love talking to you. Let's talk to you outside of this podcast. Let's get to know you. That's housekeeping. Done. Dang. (laughs) It can be quick. It can be quick. I've only been recording for a minute and 29 seconds. Look at that. Look at us go. golly. Okay. All right. Topic. This is golly a lot. Is uh, was it Jeff Goldblum? My wife for some yeah. reason's been saying golly. like golly a lot, no. and I was like, reminds me of Jeff Goldblum, and I was like, huh, it's kind of weird. Life will find a way. Good golly, yeah. <laughs> Good golly. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. <laughs> and Jeff Goldblum impressions another another episode. All right. Wasting time. Continue. <laughs> Today's episode, I think, is a pretty cool episode. Um, I see. Kind of a trip down memory lane. It's called How We Master Now Compared to When We Started. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually really funny because I just deleted all of my old templates. And oh I was my like, gosh, Man, why did you delete I, them? Well, I was just like, I don't need them. They're taking up all this space. And I was just like, eh, let's get, get out of here. We're going to new year, new me kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, I was like, as soon as I deleted them, I was like, I wonder if I could have gone back and looked at some of my, like what, like, what I used to do. Yeah. And now we're doing this episode. I literally deleted them two days ago. So that's ironic. <laughs> I love, I have literally in logic, Moses Mastering. 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, 19, 19, uh. had some revisions, 20, 22.0, 23.0, 21, 21.2.0, 22, 22.0, and now we have a 23. Looking in my trash to see if I've deleted it recently. I delete my trash pretty darn often. Oh, I have a 2014 one, actually, under Sam Lightning. I do mastering. have the old templates. I have them from 2019. Yes. I guess that's when I. It's, it's kind of funny. It took me forever to make a template. Yeah. But then, like, I can't imagine not having a template now. Like, you having to set up yeah. logic, whatever DAW you're in every time. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I'll have to I'll have to pull those back over and check them out someday. I also have like and, and not delete my trash. Old templates labeled like different famous master engineers, where I would like stumble upon a gear sluts or a RIP gear space article where it's like so and so uses an inflator at 13% and blah blah and I'd be like oh what else do they use oh our base oh okay our okay and then I'd like assemble a channel strip that I would label their name and they'd be like oh, I guess that's what they use Ew. <laughs> and like it doesn't work for never, you never never ever worked <laughs> yeah and that it's would like, be a uh, good segue of how we master now compared to when we started <laughs> Well, it's like people making it's like people making presets, and it's like you're not going to use the Greg Calby preset for right. this. It's irrelevant so, to your song. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going to go back because the way that I used to take notes in my uh, for my mastering sessions, when I would just take photos before. Yeah. Oh yeah. I started because now I have a code. Do you have a code? I have a code for my notes. You mean like your own like language for your notes? Oh yeah, yeah. I no do. one can read it but me. If I die, no one's <laughs> resurrecting these masters. Yeah, I have yeah. my own. Like it's like fill in the blank, basically. Yeah, it's like an ad lib. Yeah, I used to take photos, so I'm going back. I'm looking for those old photos. Yeah. Like, what did I do? Anywho, let's hop into it. Yes. Um, I guess dial the music back a little bit, and mm, mm, let's. Mm. If you haven't already, you know, mm. we're only five minutes into this puppy. Sam in the future. Um, Sam of the future. Dial it back. Um, let's uh, I let's start let's start plug-in wise and mm-hmm, let's start mm-hmm. kind of like wh- where these templates were. Yeah. 
Was there anything that you kind of had like on the rag? This is this is kind of what I would always do. This this is my sound. Yeah. Well, first I want to say I hope this episode real quickly is encouraging to people in that like we all start somewhere. So going through this I think will be fun, but also hopefully encouraging that where you start, you're probably not going to be next year and the year following, and that's okay. <laughs> that's how life goes. Um, things are always changing. Um, but for me, like, how I used to master was like a heavy focus on, I was fascinated on like, how do you get loud records? Like, that was mm-hmm. my initial focus because the way I learned was basically watching guys just like throw a bunch of L2s on top of each other and and a rap session and call that mastering. And that, to me, got it loud. And a lot of my original masters, like I really struggled to get them loud. And by that, I mean just like compete with what's out there. And that would be like back when, I mean, I had CDs, so I'd burn a CD of the record I was doing and then I would you know, put it in my six-disc CD changer in my car and that was the quickest I could flip through. <laughs> or you could burn the songs in theory, like make your own new CD, which I used to do that. So you put on, you know, like Usher song next to your R&B song. Because back in the day, I was doing a lot more of that type of stuff, like R&B. And my, my songs would always sound like less, less loud, less impactful, less clear, less put together. Less loud, less often. Yeah, less, less loud, loud, more yeah, often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Less loud, more it was less <laughs> less awesome. Less awesome, more often is what they were. Um, and so I had this fascination and obsession with like, how do I get it loud? And that led down the rabbit hole of understanding that, you know, it, it begins with the source, production, mix, quality, heavily, and then of course your ability to then take advantage of that if you actually get a great mix sent to you. When you start out, at least for me, I started out with uh, not great mixes to work on. And I was not probably... I'm literally writing that right now. Yeah, like <laughs> I was not a great mastering engineer either probably at the time. That doesn't mean we all sucked. It just meant we were inexperienced in theory. And we weren't, we weren't honestly ready to compete. I wasn't ready to compete in the commercial market. Just like in professional leagues, like you have... There's a hierarchy of amateur and like you start out in the minor leagues and there's like multiple minor leagues and then eventually you get called up to the big leagues and then hopefully you stay in the big leagues in theory. Um, but that, you know, when I look back on my journey, it's like I started out like a basically like pickup game basketball. <laughs> That's where I started. <laughs> like, uh, you know, just like a Saturday morning hoops, you know, pick your six, your five guys and that's your team and, and here you go. And then you eventually get a little better and a little better and a little better and you learn some stuff and you meet somebody else who's better than you and you start to understand the you know, the game you're actually playing and how to play it better and how to, you know, practice and drills and things of that nature. So when I started, like my chain is like linear like waves linear phase EQ with like 36 hertz rolled off because I saw a guy do that once to like clean up the low end. <laughs> and uh, so I did a lot of that so a lot of my early stuff has a lot of uh, bass rolled off Um, and then I have like uh, Aphex Exciter from Waves on it I have uh, it's really simple actually it's like that and then I have L2, L1 and an L3 16 on it so like limiter, limiter, limiter and that was just for the hopes of being able to get something loud and um that's kind of like the original chain. Sometimes too, I would like throw on random logic plugins, which I still mm-hmm. a bit crusher I would use back then. I still use that sometimes on rock stuff because it actually is like a mid range beast. Um, but yeah, I would use a lot of logic stuff back then. But it was just, I just remember back then like the way I mastered was like stumbling through the dark. It was unsure. You know, it was like people like this. Like when I would get done with it and send it to someone, they would usually be like, this is better. And I'd kind of be like, I don't know why. <laughs> like 
but I agree. <laughs> I agree that it's better, I think, or it gets into our better versus different. Um, you know, and you just don't know enough to even know what better should be. Um, you know, if, if you're working with a brand new artist and a brand new mixer who's never made a record, which is where you start usually, um, and you've not made any records or many records, then a lot of times, I mean, I look back, I'm like, I just, I didn't know, I didn't know what a good mix should sound like. I didn't even know what a good performance should sound like, you know? And then I didn't really know, I didn't have the luxury back then to really learn and watch from like a great master engineer in theory. Um, so I didn't really get to hear like, where's a mix and where do you take it in mastering or not take it? And then how do you get that out into the world? So, mm-hmm. I mean, the way I used to master was like, I accidentally mastered. <laughs> That's how I used to master. It was like, I, my experience of audio was a studio where one guy who I still think is very talented, um, you know, and does some good records and he did have, he does have commercial success still, but he, uh, you know, he was a one-stop shop in a small town in Illinois and that's, you know, the best that that town had and it was, he's actually great, great at it. But, you know, I watched a guy basically produce engineer mix master all within a few hours because that's all the client had budgeted for. Um, and they didn't have any money to come back. That wasn't an option. So, you know, I I stumbled into mastering kind of accidentally and how I used to master, um, you know, is what I'll call mastering because people still trusted me to call the record done. You know, they weren't mm-hmm. mastering it. Those new clients, those new mixers, they weren't mastering. They didn't want to do it. They wanted me basically to be the one to say this this is better and this is how we get it louder and competitive and and I know I you can trust me, you know. And you know, at that time too, I think if you were to put on paper, I probably did know the most about quote unquote mastering compared to the brand new mixer who's maybe never mixed a record and the brand new artist who's like never made a record and the, you know, beat maker who's never sold a beat in his life. Like I probably did. I was like the leading authority, you know, of having like 12 hours under my belt, (laughs) you know, of mastering compared to them. So it's just kind of one of those things for me, like how I used to master then very unsure, very um, unsure. That's the word I can leave on that. Unsure that it was done, but with affirmation and doing lots of, records, you kind of begin to learn um, what you need to do, you know, and, you know, compared to how I do it now, like now I, my confidence is like 1000 because I've been doing this for 12 years and I've learned so much. I've done so many records. I've educated myself. Um, I've been willing to go through that refining process over and over again every year and, and, constantly trying to improve um, the product I offer to compete in the market that's always changing um, in style, volume, loudness, compression, medium. So let's stop there. Let me stop there. The year of uh, dialogue is possible. Matt, how did you, you... Oh, one final thing. I worked on... Uh, when I first started, I worked on like a Yamaha home theater system in my parents' basement. And then my first monitors were <laughs> Yamaha HS5s. <laughs> so that's what I worked on. Laptop, HS5, Inbox 2. And that was it. Dang. Not great. <laughs> hmm. Um, <clears throat> so where do I start? You started with, did you start with like a chain or how did you start i just what i just said similar i mean i kind of just said like yeah my early chain was like four plugins basically all right i'll start chain yeah um this isn't like my original chain but i just pulled up one of those photos i was talking about um i remember always liking a lot of like the plugin alliance stuff um i really always like that like bx control because it's like i don't know I, it, this definitely tags on to that whole thing of like whenever you start. I also 
think it's important to note, like, when we were starting all of this, it was pretty much like the peak of the loudness wars. Yeah. And so I would definitely say that it's dying down a bit as far as, like, genre by genre, people don't care as much. I mean, people still care about having loud records, but... um, I mean, I've had people tell me turn it down more and more every year, and it stuff's not necessarily getting louder. It just, and I don't think that I'm, nothing's necessarily smashed. They just don't necessarily want some stuff that loud. And it's, I think, kind of starting in the indie realm. I don't think you're going to see hip hop or like top forty pop really be there um, ever. <laughs> but I think the other genres, I, I do think you're seeing a lot of that dying down. Also, this was like the whole peak of like, you have to do everything at 14 loves. If you don't do it at 14 loves, you're going to be penalized. And all of that nonsense that you had to weed through. Luffs was just starting to kind of like come into like existence and be a thing that people were kind of arguing about. Um, And so there there was a decent amount to weed through and I would say you really had to pick your course of, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm not going to listen to this opinion. And because it's like whenever you start, there's so many dang opinions, and it's like, who are you going to listen to? Um, and I don't know if I listened to anybody. I think I was just so jaded by everybody. And it's like, if you have the time to make a video on YouTube about how to do this, then you're not really doing it. And I think (laughs) that's what I said. And I kind of went my own way. Um, As far as like plug-in chains and whatnot, like I was saying, um, and I think this is my initial point, is the initial mixes that you get in the very beginning... Um, are not that good. The bands you're working with are pretty um, green to everything. And so just the production quality, I mean, just... I mean, I would say that you could probably get started as a band and have a significantly higher production value with knowing about the same as, like, bands back then and potentially turn out a better product just because I believe the tools are better today. Um, but I started with that BX control a lot. Um, for some reason, I always started with an MSEQ. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's like a whole thing with like mastering engineers or whatnot, but they're like, like MS is like a big thing that you kind of learn and that you uh, get into. Um, I wouldn't always do it, but I remember like hearing a lot of like that low end junk on the sides. And it's like, I don't know, maybe like sub 40 hertz Mm -hmm. to where it's like, do the signs really need to be muddy on this type of a genre? And generally, no. And generally, you can like free some of that stuff up. In today, unless it's like really, really like offensive, not like I'm offended, but like sonically offensive, like it's just not helping the song to have all this extra gunk on the sides. I generally won't touch any of it um, just because it's like if it's there, I'm assuming it's the intent of the artist. Plus, the mixes are better to the point to where you almost don't really need to do anything. But I would do a lot of just like little cleaning up. If you listen to some of the older episodes, um, with in regard to EQ, Sam was historically a booster. I was mm-hmm. historically a cutter, and I would just find those like little tiny parts in the frequency spectrum that would just kind of got like tubby or woofy or something. And it's like, all right, what do we do with this here? Um, so this is also like around the time that like Isotope was re- no, I'm sorry, Ozone was becoming like a really significant. <laughs> Uh, mastering product it wasn't it, I mean it was to it, it was initially out to make mastering easier I don't know if it was the whole like plug in alliance claiming that their master desk can is now like your drummer can master your so- your drummer can master <laughs> the song or so easy your drummer can do it like that whole thing which I think they actually say on one of their like testimonies um 
it was really just a tool, I believe, to help mastering engineers and people who wanted to dabble. And I was very much of the mindset that I wanted to dabble. And so... I would generally have an equalizer that would be an MS, and then I would follow that up with like some type of EQ that would be in stereo mode. Um, and it's, it wasn't always used. It was just like if it was a thing that was needed, it's like, okay, since we're in MS, is there anything that's affecting like the whole spectrum that we could potentially look at? Um, I also remember I did a lot of stuff with that dynamic e- e- EQ. Wow, I stuttered there. Um <laughs> I guess I had a brain fart in uh, in ozone or isotope, whatever it's called. I really like. I, re- I remember like little moves that I would do that I really liked. That I'll even be thinking back today. I was like, man, that was kind of a good idea. And it's like I would have something to where like if I wanted to bring the vocal range out on the dynamic EQ, which I always called it the millennials, uh, the millennials EQ because it's like a non-committal <laughs> EQ. Um, I'm a millennial. I can say it. Um, Essentially, you kind of like do a broad boost bell in the vocal range. So like kind of like the middle of your bell is like, I don't know, let's say it's like a male-ish vocal. Like, I mean, like as far as like register where it's coming from. And it's like around like the 2K area. And you have like whenever the vocal digs in, it's uh, it's dipping down back to unity. And it would give this cool effect of like the vocalist, like not in a drastic way, but like just pulling away from the mic just a little bit. And Sam, I just pulled away from the mic so you kind of, you know, get the effect. It probably won't really help like maybe uh, add compression to this or whatever. I know. Y'all, if you don't know, this is the loudest podcast on the on the webs. So yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, I like doing that. I also like doing things like with the low end of that dynamic EQ that would... um. It would allow, it, it, there would be like, like kind of like a shelf boosted, but then as soon as like that first, like, I don't know, it, it would be time for every kick. And so, like, whenever the kick would hit, the attack would essentially pull it down to unity immediately. So you would have that thwack. But man, I, I don't know. I just, I just like doing stuff like that. I actually thought about doing that the other day. Now, I think I used, I think I used spiff instead. Spiff's just like a way better kind of thing to use. Uh, I loved that virtual tape machine by mm. Slate. Yeah. At the time, I don't know the last time I used that. I don't think I've opened it since I got, uh, since I went into UAD land. But was it the ATR 102? It's just so freaking delicious. I can't like, I don't know. I, I, I love using that. I don't use it on everything. Like if I have something that's poppy, it's like I'm not going to use a tape machine on like a pop sound or mm-hmm. pop tune but it's like if you have stuff that's like too se or too like weird in the low end and you can afford the tape vibe and glue go into the back end of the atr 102 and that eq that's up there is so darn nice it's like a little uh um it's like top left of the of the whole module like when you go into the back end of it and you can just dial back the top end in a really nice tapey way or you can boost the um, the low end. If you want like a little bit more tubbiness, I always like that a lot. But yeah, anyway, back then I used the virtual tape machine. I remember I would always use. I mean, if I needed the punch or something, I'd use the API twenty five hundred or the SSL. Mm-hmm. I'd always like go between because it's like, and I would really only use it for like trying to get some thwack out of stuff. Yeah, but it's funny because I like with the actual twenty five hundred. I have the twenty five hundred plus, a little flex, mm-hmm. and uh, I do not use that plugin at all the way I use the hardware, mm-hmm. and it is surprising how differently I use the hardware. And if you have the if you have the the moolah, I highly recommend just going for the hardware. It's Pretty darn nice. I mean, you're gonna get some thwack with the uh, with the plug-in, but good golly, the vibe of that the hardware is really nice. Let's see. This says Slate Digital also on the thing. What else do I use Slate Digital? The FGX. Oh my gosh! Didn't they just redo that? I just saw something. They just redid the FGX. I let's see. I think I like the compressor. 
I think I like the low end punch and the detail a little bit, but I'll tell you what. Oh, and the dynamic perception. That was cool. But what sucked is you could never really get it loud. Anytime you got it anywhere near like nine or so RMS, it would just get so darn noisy and overloaded, but like nothing about it would look overloaded, but it would just sound overloaded. Mm-hmm. It says isotope ozone again. You know, you know what that probably is? It's probably the Maximizer. I liked the Maximizer. That was like the era of the Maximizer. <laughs> that or the Vintage Limiter and then the Pro-L2. Looks like it was a thing back then. No, no, the Pro-L. The Pro-L, not the Pro-L2. What am I talking about? I still think that meter on the Pro-L is like one of the best, most accurate meters. Mm-hmm. Every every meter registers stuff differently, but... I'll even even if I'm not using the Pro L2, I'll still pull it up just to be like, okay, where's this metering at? Um, but yeah, I liked that a lot. That was also like when you were like everyone was kind of in like the mastered for iTunes and everything, yeah. inner sample peak, yeah. and like out and like like if you had too many like peaks, you yeah it was, yeah. And too so, many like, overs, you needed, you'd be disqualified for. And it's like you'd have to pull out that Apple. What is it? The round trip. Round trip plugin. And it would just get so darn annoying because it would be like, oh, how much lower do I have to turn the output of this limiter down? But then you had the Pro L to where you just flipped a button yep. and like the little ISP button, and then you were golden. Yep. And so. That was that was kind of a game changer in that you could pretty much guarantee that, you know, as long as you were kind of managing your output and you had that on, it was quite fantastic. So that's kind of what I did. Um, and then I guess I didn't have hardware at the time. Yeah. I do mean, you want to... Yeah, go ahead. Do you want to... I mean, I know this isn't like a super long episode because we started pretty darn late. Um You want to go into your progression into hardware, kind of where you're at now, kind of how, like, like kind of what you're doing now on, like, say, like an average tune. Yeah. And how that's progressed. And, like, what are you doing or what are you not doing now? Yeah, I mean, I... I think that's the sign of, like, the most right. prog is, like, what are you not doing? A few things, like, I never... <laughs> I don't have one song I've mastered that has anything Slate on it ever. I have nothing with Universal Audio on it ever. Um, I've always just worked with what I wanted to work with, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something I want people to hear too. Is that's That segues into how do I work now, which is however I want to work. <laughs> like However you want to work out there, is how you should work. Um, there are some foundational things that I think are valuable to learn about gain staging and learning what compression does, learn attack and release, you know, what do those knobs do, learning about EQs and tubes and solid state. Just see all our previous episodes. <laughs> you will learn. Um, but what I do now is, um, you know, I'm pretty... I started my quote-unquote career fully in the box. Then mm-hmm. about five years in, once I was starting to make money, I went out of the box um, and I started buying gear, which we've done gear episodes and gear rundowns. Uh, you can go to my website, mostmastering.com too, and see a gear list. I won't go through it all. Um, I started buying lots of gear and pieces of gear that I thought were fun and extensions of how I heard records and things I felt like fit in my chain and solved problems. Um, and then now, like the last couple of years, I moved more like very hybrid and also like in the box on a lot of records just because a lot of records are coming in so hot and so colored already with the mm-hmm. continual... Um, obsession with emulation of hardware, which is just the irony. Like everybody wants analog sound from digital. <laughs> like, um, well, they want it without the money. Yeah, they want it without the money, and you know, and it's still the irony is, you know, if they would have worked all analog, it honestly probably would sound better. Does that matter? I don't know, but um, you know, the emulations are getting better. the The harmonic distortion is getting better. 
stuff is starting to come in really, I'll say, how people viewed colored or warm and round and fatter. Um, so I don't always need to go out of the box. Sometimes things are just so loud, meaning compressed already, and it sounds terrific that taking it out of the box just makes it kind of feel more sluggish just from the nature of analog sometimes. So that mm-hmm. doesn't best serve the song. I think that like at this stage, how I approach things is really like, how can I best serve the song? How can I keep the integrity of the mix? While at this stage, and I feel like I've earned it now, like with my clients and doing this for 12 years, is like, people do come to me for a certain sound and feel. And so, I don't know, three, four years, well, probably like five years ago, I started to really trust my gut 100%. And I wish I would have done that earlier, but I do send back things that sound different. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something like I do more and more. Of course, I just said like keep the integrity of the mix and you know, blah, blah, but... There are ways to keep the integrity of the mix while manipulating it and changing it um, quite drastically to give the client probably what they wish they had. And that's kind of where I lead with now at this stage is I will usually, if it's a brand new client, I usually tell them, hey, you know, give me your thoughts, your references, your ideas, you know, what do you feel? My form always has questions, thoughts, concerns, let me know. And they'll say, you know, a number of things that are always very helpful um, for giving some boundaries, um, which is how you call a record done is you need to have boundaries. You need to know what are the parameters to work in and what is the client expecting. And that's how you know when a record is actually done. Um, But from that, I'll say, okay, you know, that makes sense. I can do that. I can do this, you know, that, you know, we can see how it comes out. You know, that might be a mixed thing, but let me see. And then I usually tell them, like, I want to deliver, I want to give you back something of like where I think we could take this. Like, mm-hmm. let me have free reign on the first one because I have an unlimited revision revision policy, which like never ever go past a few versions with anyone usually. Usually version one is the one that gets put out now. Um, But I usually try to tell people, hey, you don't have to worry about it. Like, Just let me do my thing. Let me take it as far as I think we can based on what you're wanting. And I'll usually send them something back that, in my opinion, when I AB it to the mix, I'm like, yeah, this is really different. Um, But I really like it. And then usually they're like, yeah, this is like better than what I thought it could be, you know, it's it's beyond uh, you know, my expectations. It it's finally sounds like how I wish it would have sounded from, you know, the start. And so now I you know, the way I messer now is with a lot of confidence and a lot of trust into my own sound and my own opinion on on how a record should sound based on my education and experience now. But I also have an understanding that my product is not for everyone. And so when I first started, I really had this idea like, I'll be the best mastering engineer in the world. Everybody should use me kind of mentality. And then over the years, now I understand that most people will not work with me. And that's just because of the sheer amount of variety in life and music being made. And like, I'm going to probably, I probably work on like 0.01% of all audio. Like, you know, and I'm a very busy master engineer who puts out a lot of records. I don't even know. It's probably less than that, the amount of songs that come out. Um, And so, you know, the way I master now is I listen to the song still. I listen to the chorus a lot. I think about where is the vocal a lot. There are things I, I point to, like we've talked about in other episodes, like where's the vocal? How do I make that sound awesome? Where's a low end percussion element I can bring out usually? And then I decide, do I want to go in the box, out of the box, hybrid? And um, yeah, at this stage, you know, there's a lot of records that stay in the box um, because I think it will best serve the client's end goal, you know? And a lot of clients listen to, a lot of records are made in the box now um, from start to finish. So that's kind of a sound that people are familiar with. Um, You know, so if you just go out of the box, if they give you a record that like definitely sounds digital or you can do some research and find out, oh, they kept it all in the, in the box, 
you know, and you go out of the box, then you're probably going to give them something that really does feel different, different, different. Um, and that's going to throw them off. So how I work now is much more open to in the box, out of the box. I don't really care. Whatever serves the artist best. And then I trust myself way more, um, which I wish I would have done earlier. And um, I'm doing... I'm doing pretty much the same thing I've kind of always done, which is like limiter, EQ, limiter, EQ, limiter. Like, that's my sound, which we've talked about before, the way I work. It's basically three limiters, two EQs. The last limiter is just catching your sample peaks. Um, But I just pick things that I feel like highlight the things I'm trying to highlight based on what the client seems to be really jazzed about. And... um, and do that. It sounds so simple, but it's it's not. <laughs> it is, but it's not. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't like look at meters a ton outside of like I think a few episodes ago I said I was getting really into meters, but I kind of like immediately after that episode I was like, eh, I don't care about this anymore. Um so really like back into just <laughs> my ears and like not worrying about loudness or like what records are at and letting the client Tell me if it needs to go louder um, again. And then um, headphones on and off. I've started to kind of like headphones, like the Olo headphones. Matt hates them or dislikes them. Gasp. Um, but yeah, I found a pair of headphones that I actually really enjoy <coughs> listening to records on and making I master on them sometimes. <coughs> and uh, no issues, no qualms. And that's kind of a new thing for me. I didn't use headphones until like the last year. The reason I use headphones, sometimes if a record's in the box, I know it's going in the box, I'm going to be outside or I'm going to go do something where I don't have to sit mm-hmm. in my room. And then I got some headphones. So um, I don't feel like I'm giving a lesser product with these headphones. Uh, I built trust with them over the last year. It's probably year two of having them actually. And just checking it back in my room and everything sounds great. So that would be a different way I master. And um, yeah, I just feel like I'm obsessed with making things fly out of the speakers more than just like loudness. I think that introduces perceived loudness, but I kind of have this thing the last few years and people have said it in comments too of like oh the record just seems to fly out of the speakers and that's a really nice thing you can steal that people out there if you want to market yourself just say I make records fly out of the speakers and people are like oh that's awesome that's what I want (laughs) who doesn't want that Um, but yeah I kind of really the last few years have focused a ton on contrast and push and pull and that doesn't mean dynamics either it just means the contrast. I'm really into contrast now and the pushing and pull of a record. So I'm going to stop there because I'm looking at the time. And Matt, why don't you, if you have time, talk about where you are now? Do we start with headphones and that's kind of where you <laughs> sure, left yeah. off? Bit of a bombshell. Um, so yeah, it was kind of funny because I think we did a headphone episode a while ago and I think it was a bit of a one-sided episode because we hadn't done an episode on headphones, but Sam just doesn't like headphones or did not. I don't know, for the first five years I knew him. Right. And so... What, you're going to be 35 this month. Uh uh (laughs) So uh for the... For uh, for for quite the majority of your life, yes. you have detested headphones. Correct. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I uh, I'm a headphone fan. I started with the the DT seven seventies. It's currently what I'm wearing on my face right now. On your face. <laughs> yep, I wear them a little weird. They're currently sitting on my head. Um, they're great for recording podcasts. I isolate pretty well, um, and they're comfortable and they're reliable. And I think that the, I think that you're getting enough detail given the pre that you use or the DAC that you use mm-hmm. um, 
to really be able to like dive into a song. And so I, I like them a lot. As far as closed back go, um, I've heard a lot of closed back. I've heard a lot of open back. And as far as closed back go, I really like these. And they used to be $500. Now you can pick them up on Sweetwater for 150 And I'm thinking, it's like, I don't know. Do I go like end of the world prepper and just buy like five pairs and just put them in my bomb shelter or something? I don't know. Sam and I were talking about that. I don't have a bomb shelter. <clears throat> um, anywho, I really like them a lot. I bet they would survive a nuclear blast. They're pretty beefy. <laughs> um, and then Sam and um, a handful of other kind people were talking up the Olos. And I think Sam... I, f- I feel like Olo is a small enough company that they're able to kind of pivot as they need to. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's kind of like whether, like a large company, it's kind of like turning a cruise ship as opposed to like a small company. It's kind of like turning the jet ski and like if you need to pivot, you need to get other components or something. And I don't completely know the story. Like Sam and I have just kind of compared like just like the looks of our headphones and there's some aspects that are different. Um, I bought the fours. Sam has the fours. You also bought the fives. You didn't care for the fives. And the way that you described the... The fives is I exactly how I describe the fours. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think they sound bad. I let them burn in for like, I don't know, at at least seventy hours. And like they were just on and running and it's like whether or not you think a burn in period for headphones is adequate or not. I mean, knowing manufacturing, you are using like glues and stuff like that. And so like there are things that will need to settle and there are things that will need to like you, you're using moving components. And so stuff's going to happen. And, um, I believe a burn in period is, I think it's necessary for the majority of equipment. Is it necessary for the Lynx Hilo? I don't think so. Is it necessary for the massive passive and the uh, manly very mute? Yeah, that's why they burn them in. Is it necessary for a Maslick MEA2, a solid state piece of gear? No, I, I don't think it is at all. Um, anywho, um, I did not care for them. And uh, I think that's about as far as I'm going to go with that. I then got into some LCDXs. Dude, I can do a whole thing on how I chose LCDXs because I have a whole case study that I've kind of done on Odyssey. That's just how I do stuff. I'm really obnoxiously anal about this stuff. And uh, the long long of it, whatever, the the short of it all is that I was totally going to do the LCD5s but then everyone I saw go back and listen to the LCDXs or they do the fours or they would do whatever, they would always compare them to the Xs. And it's like, well, why are you always comparing them to the Xs? Because it's like there's no reason to compare the fives to the Xs. But Or if they built a new headphone, they'd build, oh, I like this about the X and I like this about the four. Can we put this together? And it's just like they always were talking about the X. And it's like, well, shoot, I'm just going to start right here then. That's the short version of my case study. Um, and I absolutely love them. I have no problem with them. The, my biggest thing with the Olo is is that I would totally hear a click or something that I wanted to remove in RX with my keys or with the DT770s, and I would not hear it on the Olos. And I was like, okay, this is like an immediate grounds for dismissal. So anywho, um, I'm not using them anymore. Um Okay, so how have I changed? And I have like eight minutes left till we got to wrap this episode. Um, so I would say in the beginning, I was confident that, like, I wasn't. I wasn't kind of like. I I don't want this to come off disrespectful towards you, Sam. You said that you were kind of like haphazardly like making decisions. Mm-hmm. Correct when you started? Yeah. I feel like I was always pretty confident in what I wanted. And I don't know if that was just me doing like a ton of like live sound and touring and stuff like that. And it just, I just always knew what I wanted. Um, Or I don't know, maybe I'm just confident in how I like music to sound. I mean, I grew up with music, whether it was like playing an instrument or singing. I sang for tons of years until I discovered cigars. (laughs) Um, 
Anywho, it's like I just knew how like music is composed and put together and, and what something should sound like if it doesn't sound like. And I generally through for live sound was knew how to get it there. Yeah. And so I was I was confident and I did also know where I wanted to go. Now, did that always mean that I knew the most efficient route to get there? No. Um I would say that now, while I still have that confidence, and it's not like uh like a boastful kind of confidence. It's just like, I don't feel like ill-prepared. I don't feel like I'm listening to something for the first time, even though it is. It's like, it can be coming at me in any language. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, this is where I think this needs to go. If it needs to go anywhere. Um, there There was a master this morning that was so darn close that I was a, I was very close to being like I think this is or uh, there was a mix this morning I was like I think this is perfect I th- I don't think I need to do anything um, I heard but I heard a few things I was like okay let's just kind of do 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 and then we're it was it was pretty darn quick um, but so that confidence is there but I would say it's now significantly more refined and I think this is interesting that you said this because I also have this written down. Um, I used to think that I owed it to people to go out of the box. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. It wasn't like, oh, I owe it to you, kind of like like genuine kind of thing. But it was like the whole thing. It's like, I have the gear. I might as well at least try to use it for this song or whatnot. And I don't know if like it's because people came to me because they saw the gear or whatnot. And so like I feel like I felt like I owed it to somebody to use this gear on their project, whether or not it was the best fit. And I may have made the decision to not do that. Um, But I would say that I do a decent amount of projects in the box. Um, these days. It's not like, oh, like every project, I'm going to go sell my gear or something like that. It's like, if I just don't think that outboard gear will benefit what I'm hearing, then I'm not going to use it. And if I can get you a better, more substantial, more like readily distributable um, product by staying in the box. And if I think that going out of the box, because once again, you are losing something by going into the analog, by going through this conversion mm-hmm. that you have to go through twice, all the wire you have to go through, all the like tube uh, vibe and everything that could be imparted, transformer vibe that could be imparted. I mean, it's not clean. And so if we need to stay clean... It might be the best thing. Like one of my favorite plugins as of recently is that um, I have that whole Weiss package by SoftTube mm-hmm. where they did the one to one transfer from uh, all the Weiss gear the compressor, deesser, the EQ, and the their little maximizer and their dynamic EQ. I love all that stuff. And in my opinion, it's like that's pretty much like going out of the box minus the converter. And so it's like I can get all the things that I need to get and you're getting this like literally legendary hardware that was it's a digital unit so you're literally just transferring the code over. And so I love that I love that and then if I have to stay in the box but I want a little bit of analog vibe I have this like really bad thing where like I'll buy a plug-in for a lot of money and then I won't use it for six months and then like it'll dawn on me that I have it one time and I'll be like, oh my gosh, this is saving the world. And that plugin right now is that NIF Soma by Plugin Alliance. I sat on that forever and man, I am just using it left and right. If somebody just needs a little vibe or a little push or just doing some like fun stuff with shelves, man, I love it so much. And so sometimes staying in the box just makes more sense. Um, So all that said and done, I would just say the way that I'm operating now is just a way more efficient way of how I used to operate. And you can listen to any, any of the old episodes about, I think the gear episodes, about our chains and whatnot and how we use everything. Um, I think also one of the other ways, and I know I need to wrap this really soon. I need to get home for dinner. Um, But it's like, if I want a little bit of that vibe, for some reason, I would just kind of always run through the majority of my chain, not everything, but like the majority of it. 
But it's like right now it's kind of like, yeah, I'm going to go in because I just want this tube kind of stuff. And I just want like, I, I can't get that texture anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, we're going to run through the very mute and the massive passive and like Dave McNair's on the other line crying. It's like, <laughs> I love you, Dave. We need, I need to set up a call with Dave. It was such a good interview. Anyway, um, just to get a little bit of that vibe and then go back and then just like, and you, you print it super quiet. That's, that's something that I've, I've done recently since talking to Dave. So I'm, I'm working on it, Dave. I'm making it happen. And uh, yeah. And then you come in and you, uh, you finish it just uh, in the digital. And it, I don't know. I, I'm just having a fun time over here. So nothing, nothing's going anywhere anytime soon. So anyway, I need to wrap this episode. And uh, you have anything else, Sam? No, that's great. I totally could talk for another 30 minutes on all this. Let's wrap up. Yeah, I know. All right. Y'all know what to do. Bye. I'm just playing. <laughs> if you hear a sweet beat in the background, that was made by Sam. He's made 137, 138 of these things. Uh, give him some love. Tell him thank you. Let him know that these episodes always sound just fantastic. And uh, thank him for making us the loudest episode, you know, the loudest podcast out there. Um, we're going to start just putting that as a tagline. Let's see. If uh, you need a mastering engineer, Sam can be found at Moses Mastering. I can be found at For The Record Mastering. We'd both love to take your project across the finish line. Uh, Feel free to reach out to us really anywhere. And uh, yeah, we'd love to help. If, uh, hi Biggie. Biggie says tiny. If, uh, yeah, if you wouldn't mind just taking a screenshot of this episode, posting it on Instagram and just sharing it with everyone, print a copy out for your grandma, be like, you need to check this out, grandma. And, uh, yeah, we'd really appreciate it. We love all the listens, and uh, we love just kind of learning about you and who you are and what you're up to. And I think with that, I'm done. Woo-hoo. So morning, afternoon, evening, whatever you're having, have a darn good one. See you on the next episode. Ta-ta. Bye. Bye.